What if everything you've been taught about money was wrong? How would you respond? In 1971, the rules of money changed, but the way we were taught to invest did not. Go to thenewroadtowealth.com to learn the new rules of money they are not telling you about. thenewroadtowealth.com. A faster road to wealth is now open. Don't get left behind. thenewroadtowealth.com. This is Terrio Media. Broadcasting from Terrio Studios in Glendale, California, it's time for Epic Real Estate Investing with Matt Terrio. Yeah, hello, hello and welcome. Welcome to Epic Real Estate Investing, the place where I show people how to escape the rat race using real estate. A lot of people think this is a real estate show. It's not a real estate show. It's a money show using real estate as the vehicle. And to escape that rat race, all you got to do is one thing. You just got to shift your focus from making piles of money to making streams of money. Change that one thing just one time and you are on your way to financial freedom. It's not the most exciting path, I promise, but it is the fastest. That's why we talk real estate, because it is the final frontier where the average person has a legitimate shot at creating epic wealth and the quickest road it is to get there. And once you get there, life then becomes exciting. Alrighty, so I got a, a good question uh, this week inside of the Epic Pro Academy. Uh, yeah, this this week from, from Parker. And Parker had asked, Matt, I know I have heard on a past podcast that you like to really kick it into high gear during the winter months because that is when most of the competition is slacking off. What would be a few specific pointers you could give your followers on how to kill it this winter to help catapult us into 2016 riches? Love that question. I love the way he said it or the way that he phrased it. What specific pointers could you give your followers on how to kill it this winter? So that's what we want to do. We want to kill it this winter. And so my first response, if nothing else, do not take it easy. You got that right, Parker. Do not take it easy. Act as if it's just another month. That's the absolute minimum. Now, I'll tell you what I'm doing. Personally, I'm doubling down on my mailing this month. Doubling down. I'm sending out twice as much mail in the month of December than I have ever sent, actually. This is going to be my biggest mailing month ever. And another thing that I've done this month, which I'm going to carry out indefinitely, but I'm starting it this month specifically, is I'm doubling down on my follow-up touches. See, I have my VAs from VAsforrealestate.com. They're calling all of my leads back. Uh, they're fielding those calls. They're calling the leads back 40 hours a week, nonstop. Two full-time people do just that. And I'm sending a recorded voicemail out now every other week. I used to do that monthly. Now I'm doing it every other week, a recorded voicemail to, to all of my suspects and prospects. I'm sending out a text broadcast on alternating weeks. I used to do that just once a month. Now I'm doing that every other week, alternating one week is the recorded voicemail, next week is a text broadcast. One week is a recorded voicemail, next is a text broadcast. And then I'm sending out an email broadcast once per month, of which I didn't do frequently, but now with all the leads that we've been generating, we are getting a, a really good database of email addresses. So now it's really gonna make sense to do that. And here's why the massive follow-up. This is why I'm doubling down. There are some statistics. I think it's by um, oh, some sales organization, some association. I forget where, where it's from. But uh, they reveal the statistics of when most sales are made. And 48% of salespeople never follow up with a prospect. That's why I drive it home so hard that when you generate a lead, you've got to call the lead back. 48% of salespeople never do. Half never call the lead back. They just, they spend all the money on the marketing. They make the phone ring. They capture that lead's information and then they do nothing with it. They just hold it and collect it and just store it in their computer somewhere. Don't do that. So 48% of all salespeople never follow up with a prospect. 25% of salespeople make a second contact and then they stop. So uh, 25% of the people will make at least one contact and then they are a second contact and they stop. 12% of salespeople make more than three contacts. Only 12% of salespeople make more than three contacts. You want to get into the top 10% of salespeople? Make four contacts, okay? Because only 12% of them make more than three. So did I say that right? So if you want to get in the top percent, 
make more than three contacts. Okay, there we go. So where do you and your business fall in, into those stats right there? I mean, how many contacts are you making with each prospect? How many times are you contacting each lead? Not how many times are you dialing the phone? How many times are you dialing the phone and they actually pick up? How many contacts, how many pieces of mail are you mailing to them? Are you sending broadcasts? Are you sending them text messages? Are you sending them emails? Each one of those count as a contact. How many contacts are you making? I mean, maybe you are an elite salesperson and you do follow up four times with each prospect. That's awesome. You are in the top 10% of all salespeople. And here's why you want to even double your follow-up attempts, even if you are at four times. Well, first, generating leads, depending on how you're doing it, especially in this business, it can be expensive. I mean, my the, the lead generation, it's probably my biggest single business expense in my business. You know, we're doing, I don't know, $15,000, $20,000 a month right now. And I think just three months ago, we were doing like $5,000 a month. And that number is going to double again first quarter. So that's my biggest uh, uh, single expense. So with that being the case, you're going to want to maximize your marketing dollars. You want to maximize the the ROI on that money that you're spending. So that's first. That's why you want to make those contacts. You don't want to just make one, two, or three contacts like the amateurs and then let it go. You don't want to do that. And the, the next reason that you want to do that is... It's actually probably the bigger, the, the biggest reason for doubling down your follow-up is the results. You see, just 2% of sales are made on that first contact. Just 2%. Just 2%. 3% of sales are made on the second contact. 5% are made on the third contact. And 10% of sales are made on the fourth contact. So if you are a sales rock star, you are in that top 10%. You are making at least four contacts with your with your leads. You're following up four times with each one of those leads. You're only capturing 10% of your potential sales, only 10%. Get this, 80% of sales are made on the fifth to 12th contact. The fifth to 12th contact is where 80% of those come from. Now, this statistic came from, again, I forget the sales organization. And I've heard this statistic for a while, actually, when I was in floor sales, when I was selling professional audio equipment years and years ago. And, you know, and I've seen it circulate through different forums and I've seen it circulate on, on, on Facebook. But inside my mastermind group, there's a guy in there. He's re- relatively new, just been there a few months. And he has a, a massive sales force. And it's a, it's a lending business. So he's got a bunch of, of broker or yeah lend, lenders that work under his brokerage. And he has such a sophisticated monitoring system of their phones and their lead generation and everything. He knows his stats exactly. And when he did his first presentation at our mastermind group, his numbers were almost exactly this. And that was just six months ago. So I've seen the stats or seen these stats circulating for at least two decades and this guy brought in his brand new fresh data and they haven't changed in two decades. So if you want to kick off 2016, if you want to generate those 2016 riches that Parker is looking for, and you want to just do this with an absolute bang and make next year your yes or your best, do yourself a favor and send out an extra mailing in December. Just send out an extra mailing right now this month because those are going to be your leads in January. That's what's going to help you have a a rock star type January. And then what you want to do is you want to follow up with those leads and follow up with your past leads like crazy. Hit them from as many angles as possible. Phone, text, email, direct mail. Hit them from every single angle. You know, the follow-up system that I've set up in my business, I believe, is the second most valuable asset my business has. Because since implementing this practice this month, December will be our biggest month of the year, wholesaling and flipping properties. And and the overflow from my December efforts are going to make January even bigger. And this is all happening during the time most people are taking it easy. If you want to take it easy, if you want to pick a month to take it easy, I'd say take July off. Take off July. You know, looking back over years and years and years, and not just as an investor, as a real estate agent as well, August seems to always be the slowest month of the year from almost every perspective, from a buyer's perspective, from a seller's perspective, August. That's the slowest month. So why take off July? 
Any answers? Any ideas? Any guesses? Why would you take off July if August is the slowest month? Because typically you get paid for the activity you did 30 days ago. What you're getting paid for today is is because of work that you did 30 days ago. So if you're going to take some time off, take that time off in July, and then your August is going to be slow. Got it? Or that that slow month is going to match up with your slow inflow of leads. So I'd recommend, though, you do not take off December. Just my recommendation. If you want to start off the year big and make January a rock, you've got to put in the work in December. That's how it works. All righty? So I've got a great guest for you today, an entrepreneur bringing buyers and sellers together via technology. I love these technological conversations. And I mean, we're going to find that elusive push button system sooner or later, aren't we? When we'll see, we'll see if he has the answer right after this. There are two steps to wealth. First, stop doing what poor people do. Second, start doing what wealthy people do. The wealthiest people do what they do best and delegate the rest. If only you had the time and resources to do it. Now you do. We're VAsforrealestate.com and we have some free information for you. Get the five-step shortcut to hiring a rock star virtual assistant that will make you millions. Go to VAsforrealestate.com. Stop doing what poor people do and do what wealthy people do. VAsforrealestate.com. Our guest today has over 25 years of senior level managerial experience with entertainment, television, advertising, and media companies. And he's bringing his talents to the real estate space. And he's here today to share what he's up to. So please help me welcome Oliver Katz to the show. Oliver, welcome to Epic Real Estate Investing. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Very good. So your com- I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, your company Homendo, is that right? Well, uh, the jury is still out. A lot of people oh. call, it, call it Omendo or Omendo, um, okay. whatever feels natural to you. <laughs> tomato, tomato, right? <laughs> exactly. Perfect. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your company specifically and what you guys do? Well, we, we started three years ago developing a, a solution that uh, uh, will essentially address both the, the needs of the real estate professional but also the, con- the consumers. Uh, there's a growing divide between the real estate professionals today and and the Zillows and Trulias of the world. Um, 90% of the, of the consumers go online to search for properties before they contact a real estate professional. Uh, and, you know, the, unfortunately, Zillow is pulling all of their data from public records. Uh, they, do, they do get fragmented uh, MLS information, but by and large, their, uh, their data is highly inaccurate which is very frustrating for the consumers um, and certainly frustrating for the, for the realtors as well uh, for, two, for two reasons. Well, one is that uh, Zillow is essentially uh, grabbing the data, the listing of these agents and making money um, as a result of it. Um, and, then, and two is that the consumers tend to contact realtors with homes that they want to buy uh, that actually were sold six months ago. And, and it, it happens time and time again. Uh, so our, our primary objective was to is, was to launch a mobile and an online search platform that uh, both professionals could use and consumers could use, looking at the same listing inventory uh, that is absolutely accurate because we pull from the MLS uh, and we update that every 15 minutes. Very good. So similar to uh, how are you different from Realtor.com? Uh, well, again, Realtor.com tends to 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 pull. Uh, a, sort of a, a mixture of MLS data and uh, public record, uh, and it's not MLS exclusive. Um, and in addition to that, what our platform allows realtors to do is conduct their business from the time they, they meet a prospective client all the way to the closing of a transaction. So it, it, it is consumer-facing, but also professional-facing, and under one platform essentially uh, provides the entire suite of tools required to conduct their business every day. Got it. Got it. And so this is a, a good place for, you know, our, our audience are real estate investors, and a lot of them do this, uh, do their investing virtually and out of state, and finding good, solid comps without getting a realtor involved is always a challenge. Um, does this solve that dilemma for a lot of people? Well, I think it will in time. Uh, we just launched to market, so we are now in the state of Colorado, and uh, and as of as recently as uh, as last week, uh, launched our national initiative. Um, so we are 
we're essentially broker by broker capturing all of the MLS around the country. But uh, yeah, but long term, certainly that uh, or midterm, uh, we feel that the solution uh, will be the go-to solution for anyone looking for accurate data and then an ability to then consult with a, 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 real, a real estate professional. So what are your projections on, on eventually being national? Uh, well, we certainly, you know, it's interesting. There are there are 619 MLS in the country, um, and the top 25 MLS have about 600,000 subscribers, would cover essentially, you know, uh, 25 cities and, and 29 states. So, you know, our definition of a national footprint is really to capture the top 50 MLS. With the top 50 MLS, we're essentially in, in uh, almost every state and, and, and could profess to be a national uh, property search uh, platform. And that, we think, is something that we accomplish, uh, we certainly intend to accomplish, uh, you know, certainly by, uh, by the end of the year, early next year. Okay, very good. So it's, it's certainly a work in the making, but you, you've penetrated and you're inside, you have your presence inside of Colorado to begin with. Very good. And then uh, does the public, with people without a real estate license, do they have access to, to all of the data, or is there still a limit on the data that they can see? So, we, you know, we are in line with the professional, the, the professional in this business, and, and so we are respecting certain protocol or guidelines uh, in the industry. Uh, so there are different types of information or level of information that the general public can access versus what a uh, real estate professional can. So uh, the technical terms actually are IDX feed, then broker feed, and then what they call VOW, which stands for Virtual uh, Office Website. Uh, so the general public would be able to consult and search on the property platform and have access to the basic descriptors of the property. Uh, and if a realtor was to log on to the service, they would then have access to agent information only uh, data, uh, you know, a commission structure, days on the market, and so on. Um, Right. So it, it, this is really the, the, the key differentiator is that it's the same listing inventory uh, with different level of information, but everybody's looking at the same thing, can collaborate and rely on the accuracy of the data that we actually provide. Okay. So the, the specific information that I know this audience is, is most interested in is seeing the actual what has sold, say, in the last 30 days, 90 days, last six months. Will they have access to the sold information or is it just active listings? So both. They, they will actually can access active listing, under contract, and sold. But we've introduced a brand new functionality that I think uh, your audience will, will certainly uh, uh, understand and, and be attracted to, which is the, what we call the private market. And so we have developed a, a platform that allows real estate professionals to actually create listings before actually submitting the listing to the MLS. Uh, and sharing um, sharing these uh, property listings with uh, either their preferred customers, uh, certainly among themselves, and you know, realtors can can share that from brokerage to brokerage. Uh, and in markets where the inventory is low, and certainly it is the case in Denver, and I think many other parts of the country, access to a private market is going to be a great benefit to anyone looking for homes, particularly uh, in the investment community. Got it. No, that's that sounds like a good a good deal, for sure. But um, yeah, the, the the my audience they're going to be looking more towards pulling accurate comparables. That's their biggest challenge. So we've integrated uh, two sources. Uh, one is RPR, and the other is Value Check. So for any listing, uh, any uh, let me rephrase that. Every listing um has an integrated CMA solution. So market analysis, recent sales, uh, environment statistics, uh, neighborhood statistics. So uh, again, uh, the, the idea here is to integrate all of the function, whether it's for the consumer or the real to, uh, the, the professionals, uh, under one platform to access the most amount of information. So uh, that is a big, big part of our solution is making sure that we provide a depth of market analysis attached to each uh, property listing. So the the big uh, difference, I guess, between you and someone like Zillow, the, the big gorilla in the market right now, is that your data is pulled from the multiple listing service 
and not just uh, you know county records. That's right, and 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 that our objective uh, as a business is very much aligned with the real estate professionals and, and the needs of the consumers. Uh, Zillow is an advertising site. Certainly, they're doing really well, and uh, I don't want to speak disparagingly about Zillow, uh, but th- th- their objective is really about generating advertising revenue uh, by grabbing data from from agents and essentially advertising uh, around it. Uh, One of the key uh, differentiators for us is we never separate the name of an agent from his listing or her listing. Uh, This is sort of the the golden rule of the business. But Zillow is essentially, uh, you know, in the words of a lot of realtors, are hijacking the business and exploiting the agents by by essentially making money on their listing and data. I mean, that's really a a key philosophical and uh, business objective differentiator. Got it. Got it. Super. So it, it you you just launched here recently, and so I, I imagine one hundred percent of your focus right now is just on uh, partnering with the other multiple listing services. Specifically, I think you said the top fifty. That's right, and and that happens uh, through the broker. We have a broker to broker strategy. Mm-hmm. So as we embark on a relationship uh, and an agreement with each brokerage, they are empowered to provide the MLS listing. It is part of their. Uh, their agreement with their MLS. So we as a technology vendor essentially are getting uh, what they call the REDS feed or the feed of data through the brokerage. Uh, and as such, each broker that we uh, onboard in a new MLS provides us with access to that MLS data. So in essence, if we had one broker in each one 619 MLS area, we would absolutely have a full national uh, footprint. Uh, but all we need now is 50 brokers and 50 MLS, and we'll have met our objective. Fantastic. So yeah, like I like I was, I mean, it's kind of inquiring. Or I can imagine, you know, that's your major fo- main focus, having just launched. Do you see anything above and beyond that for for Homendo? Well, we think there is an opportunity for home builders because uh, we're currently uh, focusing on uh, residential uh, homes. Uh, new, new homes certainly is a big market, which may also be of interest to the investment community. Um, we, um, we certainly will add uh, rental uh, components to Home and Do. Um, and then, of course, you know, the MLS system is unique or exclusive to the U.S. Uh, and Canada. The rest of the world doesn't have an MLS solution. What we're building essentially is is a platform that could uh, very plausibly become a standard in other countries. Super. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck. Sounds like a fantastic service. And, uh, yeah, let's let's check back in six months after, uh, you know, you, you've, you've progressed a little bit further, and uh, we'll talk about it all over again. How's that sound? That sounds like a great idea. Thank you very much, Matt. If opening up your financial statement each month is about as exciting as watching paint dry, the Epic Wealth Fund may be the next investment opportunity for you. The Epic Wealth Fund invests in distressed real estate and shares the profits with its shareholders. If you're an accredited investor who has already enjoyed success elsewhere in their business or investing life, and you're seeking a broader exposure to real estate in your portfolio on a passive basis, the Epic Wealth Fund's executive summary is available for your review. Go to EpicWealthFund.com to review the fund's executive summary. EpicWealthFund.com Real estate investments involve a high degree of risk. Residential income and returns may vary and are not guaranteed. Past performance is no indication of future performance. Nothing herein shall be construed as investment, tax, legal, or accounting advice. Oh, ho, ho! It's that time of year at Terrio Media, where we spin the wheel of reviews and give away a $100 Amazon gift card on every episode in the month of December. And here's how you play. To win a $100 gift card from us here at Terrio Media, all you have to do is leave a review for any or all of the podcasts hosted under Terrio Media, meaning this show, Epic Real Estate Investing, or turnkey real estate investing, or hold that house, or do over, and, and or body do over. Leave a review on any or all of those podcasts, and on every show in the month of December, I will randomly select a winner of one hundred dollar Amazon gift card. Now, if you've already left reviews for these shows, then there's nothing for you to do. You are already entered. 
So go to iTunes and leave a review for this show and the others. And you see with, with five podcasts under the Terrio Media umbrella, you have five chances to win this month. So let's now spin the wheel of reviews. The winner today is Panama Black, who back on January 14th of this year wrote, Matt, thank you so much for sharing your experience and real estate knowledge with us free of charge. To anyone reading this review, please know that Matt is the truth and nothing but the truth. Love this podcast. Panama Black, you are welcome, and thank you for the nice words and listening to the show. So what you want to do right now is go ahead and send us an email with your iTunes ID and the words I won in the subject line to podcast at epicrealestate.com. Send that to podcast at epicrealestate.com, and we'll get you your $100 Amazon gift card out to you right away. Now, if you want to win, you got to leave a review. You have, that's how you, you got to be in it to win it, right? You got to leave a review for any of the Terrio Media podcasts. And as you can see, it doesn't matter when you left the review, just as long as you leave one. Panama Black's review was way back at the beginning of this year. So the next $100 Amazon gift card will be handed out tomorrow on the new episode of Turnkey Real Estate Investing. Now, being the end of the year, I wanted to share a timely message or another interview, if you will, with my personal tax avoidance expert. And this was the feature interview last week on Turnkey Real Estate Investing. So if you listen to that show, then this is going to be a review. It's going to be a replay. But if you missed it and you'd like to learn the three things anyone can do to mitigate their tax bill this year, well, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Kingsley Charles. Kingsley, welcome to Epic Real Estate Investing. Hey, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You bet. You bet. So, hey, Kingsley, before we get started, can you just run down real quickly your credentials and and what your business does for its clients? Absolutely. We are, uh, from the ground up, we were always designed as a service implementation for business owners. Is it finances, taxing, accounting, all of those realms are often uh, underlooked from a business model and from an entrepreneur standpoint. So we use the professionals and our resources within our group to make sure that we give edge-cutting solutions to business owners, both from a financial reporting aspect, um, a higher-level tax planning. Tax planning is key in our business because most CPAs uh, are reactive for clients on April 15th, as you know. Uh, We take a holistic approach in terms of helping manage a client year-in and year-out in order to make sure that we're doing everything in our power to make sure that our clients are well-educated and well-informed when it comes, you know, time for April 15th. Got it. Yeah, when you, when you talk about the thing proactive, I think that's where it, a lot of people dismiss it because, I mean, you and I, before, before we started recording, we were just talking about being sick. And we were talking yeah. about, you know, possibly juicing and being proactive about it because, you know, I get sick the same time every single year and here I am again. And, you know, you don't have a lot of value for it until it actually, it's a problem. And I think that's, there's a perfect analogy there for, for taxes. No, absolutely. And it's probably accounting and tax planning for business owners are probably, even just ordinary taxpayers, is one of the most overlooked things that is significant in our, in our, in our life each year because for most people, their biggest bill is their tax bill. And so uh, it becomes very easy to worry about your accounting specifically if you're a small business owner. And more importantly, for every taxpayer, is understanding what goes into their tax return each year. Is it mechanically we all get lazy and start to think about it in January? The reality is you have the entire year to plan for what happens on April 15th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, I guess January, it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, there, there's not a lot of tax planning that goes on on April 14th. <laughs> right. <laughs> Your powers are, 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 have been dwindled significantly because of the time, right? Absolutely. Right. Well, cool. So let's talk about, um, as we hear, 
in going into uh, this last month of the year. So maybe there is, are some things that people can do to uh, mitigate their tax bill come next April. Uh, so let's go over the top three things any American can do to help mitigate their tax liability. Absolutely. It's pretty basic. And this is these, these three rules are pretty much universal with any taxpayer, whether you own a business or not. And it's kind of worth highlighting just what we were talking about, Matt, is that you got to get organized. You have to understand what is in your income number for the year and understand what your liability number is. And we'll talk about that more in a second. But more importantly is once you're organized, you need to make a plan. Is that now is the time to do any proactive planning as opposed to trying to be reactive in January or in April. And then probably the most important thing, as we add complexity to our individual worlds and our business worlds, is you got to get better help. Those three things, although it sounds incredibly simple, is what usually gets overlooked by most taxpayers. Mm -hmm. We can talk about each one of those a little bit more in detail for you. Okay. So let's go uh, talk about get organized. And I've brought this up several times that where people asked, uh, you know, what are the first three things you do if, Matt, you had to start all over and from scratch? And the first thing, it's one of the top three things would be getting a bookkeeper. Because uh, <laughs> I did not have a bookkeeper until I was making a good amount of money. And then I had to go back and retrace all those steps and clean all that up. And it was very timely. It was very expensive. And it was actually very frustrating. So how does someone, I guess, get organized? What are your, what's your advice there? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head, is that there's not a moment in time when you become an entrepreneur where somebody actually shakes you and goes, Matt you got to get organized and you got to get good, clean books. Is that we all skip over the, the wanting to get into the business mode, and they don't teach this to you in school either, so it doesn't matter what your degree is. Is The reality is the minute that you're an operating thrift, whether you're dealing with rental properties or cash flow properties, is that you have to have a dynamic there where you can actually track what's going on. And so it's the same thing whether you're a W-2 or whether you're, an on, whether you're an entrepreneur, is that if you're a W-2 wage earner, you know what your income level is, you know what your withholdings are, and so you can actually start to plan what that liability looks like. The disadvantage that we have as business owners is we dive into our business and forget to get accurate reporting along the way. And so taking the time and the energy to really to be able to identify what your income sources are, what your, your costs are for running your business, and then being able to take from that information a projection is paramount in terms of understanding your cash flow when it comes time for April 15th. Got it. You know, I, don't wanna, I know we have a, a little bit of a structure that I want to go through today, but I don't, you brought something up there, and if I throw you too far off your, your track, then you can go ahead and bring it back. I'm but, all yours. Okay. Take it where you want to go. <laughs> well, you talked about income sources, and there's something significant that Robert Kiyosaki uh, touches on, and he touches on just about in every book. He talks about the difference of how different people in our, depending on your income, the way you earn your income, how you're taxed differently. And the, w the way that he simply puts it, and I want you to tell me if this is oversimplified, is that uh, employees get taxed the most, people that get their money to work for them get taxed less, and people that get other people's money to work for them get taxed even, even less. Is that? Uh, absolutely. I, I would tend to agree. 100%. And there, there's a dynamic when we're talking about planning, there's a dynamic that goes into how you invest and how you to deploy, what your structure looks like. And so the more advanced you become in terms of those income sources and your cash flow, it gives you more flexibility to make sure that you're maximizing those investment types, those methodologies, as well as those structures. Got it. Got it. And then, so this is actually a uh selfish question <laughs> the uh get the difference between ordinary income and passive income like rental income how are those taxed differently um well there's there's actually two questions inside of there this is one of the things that i refer to when we have the, the structuring conversation and so i'll give you this, the, the simple answer and then i'll give you the, the more advanced answer is that passive income is what we would consider uh, low-level ordinary income where you might actually have uh, deductions and depreciation in the cash flow model, for example, where you've got gradual cash flow increases, but you've got uh, tax benefit inside of that methodology. 
value depreciation or accelerated depreciation, depending on your cost segregation for your rental properties and your cash flow properties. Uh, when it comes to ordinary income, if you're, say, wholesaling or flipping, that is going to be treated as ordinary income as opposed to passive, and that's where structure becomes really important because if you skip over the structuring education is that you can end up in an environment where all of that income is subject to self-employment tax, which is extremely high, especially in higher tax regions in the country like California, New York, Washington, D.C., Washington. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, you're talking about structuring, you're talking about like your legal entity, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, the difference between just having an LLC that's disregarded for tax purposes versus having an S-Corp if it applies to your business model. Got it. An S-Corp model cuts out the self-employment tax, which, by the way, is close to 15%. Well, that's a significant savings right there. Got it. Cool. So one of the one of the tax uh, strategies, I guess, for someone that has a job is to start is to start a side business with an S corp. Would that be accurate? Uh, sort of. Certainly helpful. Even in the beginning, even just to have the flexibility of having uh, a business plan and a business model, and having that entity provides a platform from which for which you to grow from is that the timing on that S corp election is really predicted by the type of business you're doing. So I want to make sure that I clarify, you know, in some of the conversations you and I have had, you know, over the past few years is that you don't necessarily want to put your rentals in an S corp. Is that you want to very clearly focus on what activity goes in what type of entity on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be kind of different for everybody, right? For the most part, there. I mean, there's standard rules that apply in terms of whether the income, back to your original point, is passive or whether it's active income, and that's really the tipping point. Is that generally speaking, is that we know that we've got a cash flow model. LLCs are usually the best way to go, both from an asset protection as well as a a tax basis item. And then if you've got ordinary income, flipping income, rehabbing income, wholesaling income, is those are typically going to be guided in terms of an S corp. Right. Okay, good. So the number one question I get from new people just getting started is when should I open up that legal entity? Is there a good rule of thumb for that? <laughs> yeah. it, you know, There is no rhyme or reason. A lot of the times with clients, because we spend so much time in the legal, in, in the legal conversation, the asset protection conversation, as opposed to just the tax, the, the tax conversation, is that I, I don't want anybody to actually have paralysis is that you do not need to get all of the things perfectly in order in order for you to go out and invest. And so I always urge first-time investors to go out and do the deal. Get the education, get focused on the core competence, and it's okay for you to go do a few deals. We can come in and layer that structure afterwards. Okay. Got it. So you don't have to do it before you execute. No, I got, we, we tell clients, go cause some trouble, we'll clean it up. Is that I would rather see a client spend its time and focus on the business activity, and then as it's actually generating real activity, it's got real cash flow, real depreciation, that's when we actually come back and help sculpt that for a client. Got it. Cool. All right, so that's number one. Get organized. Well, get, get, get organized, understanding your income, right. and then more importantly, understand your liability. And the nuance in there is that as W-2 wage earners, we know what we've paid, so we can actually calculate what our liability is going to be becomes much more difficult for a business owner. What happens when you write a check for $50,000 and buy a property? What depreciation are you getting? What expenses did you have in acquiring that property? So the organizational side and the accounting, the accounting side become really important in understanding what your liability is as you get more complex. Got it. Understood. Uh, number two was to make a plan. Absolutely. Is that once you can understand what your income and what your liability looks like, is that there are things that I refer to as vanilla that are in the tax code. And some W 2 wage earners participate in 401ks. That's what I would refer to as a tool that's just kind of hanging out there. Is that you need to be sure and maximize that. Certainly, if your employer is giving you a match, take the free money. Beyond that, there's a handful of tools which are front level decision-making, business owner, W-2, you know, predictable things that we can do as income producers, SEPs, IRAs, uh, 
HSAs, those would be basic things that you need to focus on for your end. The cool part is a SEP can actually be done, if you own your own business, a SEP can actually be done after 1231. It's not a requirement that we actually get that in place for 1231. And what's a SEP? A SEP is a, a simple employment plan. It's used for closely held businesses. And it, it allows you to contribute a certain portion of your salary into that deferred tax account, much like a 401k. Got it. But this is like for your own business, right? Absolutely. Okay. For your own business. Super. It, it doesn't come with the restrictive the restrictiveness and the TPA that's associated with a 401k. And so a lot of single, you know, single employee business owners or, you know, under, under five uh, employee business owners will use the SEP just by pure nature of ease of installation. Okay. A good example would be if you've got earned income of $208,000 in an entity that you own is you have the ability to put up to $52,000 in that SEP per calendar year, which is deferred income. Uh, deferred income, got it. it. Can you self-direct a SEP? Absolutely. And when we talk, when we talk about getting better help is that I'm a firm believer, uh, not only because of the industry that you're in, Matt, but also our, our clients are entrepreneurs and they tend to invest in their, their core competence, whether it's real estate or what have you, is that we teach the methodology that you should self-direct everything. That's everything that I just mentioned, 401ks, SEPs, IRAs, HSAs. When we talk about Kiyosaki and his, his mental belief on how you invest and where you invest, a self-directed Roth is probably the most powerful tool that you have as an investor in your arsenal. Mm-hmm. That's tax-free money forever. Right, right. Awesome. I have a question about that. Here, here's my belief on, on the retirement vehicles is that most of those, essentially, you, you are restricted from taking any sort of withdrawals until, you know, 59 and a half, 62, 65, somewhere there, right? Correct. Okay. And if you take out before that, you have the, the penalties, the, the early withdrawal penalty, and then you have uh, the taxation on it. Correct. Okay. So my, my belief or philosophy, and, and I'd love for you to weigh in on this, is that is to not use those vehicles until you get your passive income to a point where you know it can support you right now, say if you are in your 20s, 30s, or 40s. And then once you have your passive income to where you want to be, then you start using those vehicles later as uh, tax shelter, so to speak, for deferred taxes. And I understand there's a lot of people out there that won't agree with me on that, and that's okay if you don't either. But that's just my philosophy is like, I'd rather live life now with my passive income rather than save it in a tax-deferred vehicle and not be able to enjoy it until I'm 59 and a half. No, and absolutely. And there, there's a departure there in, in individual beliefs. And, and, I, and, I, already, and I, already, I already know this of your belief. And so me to make a judgment on that would be unfair um, is because every business owner and every income producer has their own belief is that we just provide as a provider. As a provider, we, we, we choose to provide options and educate on all of them. And then... However, we want to treat that decision at each year could actually change every year, Matt. It really comes down to what is your income after all expenses, what is the planning that we've got, and what do we want to do to alter that tax liability is because different clients will layer in different treatments in order to minimize the taxation. So I agree with you from a startup position, invest in your business where you have control over it, where you don't have to worry about, you know, age limitations or uh, early withdrawal penalties. But as you continue to grow your business and you start to have an income that is heavier in a tax burden, you have to start to focus on these tools in order to minimize that tax burden each year. Uh, One of the things that I tell clients all the time is at some point you have to start paying yourself because if you just keep paying the government is that you're going to get to the end of the game and you're not necessarily going to have anything left. Mm-hmm. Uh, this SEP, SEP idea, maybe we can talk about this later, but I'll, I'll bring it up just in, uh, real quickly, is you can put up to 250 something thousand dollars in that thing a year? 
Actually, except you could, if you earn two hundred eight thousand dollars per year, okay. is it you can put a, earned income, you can put up to fifty two thousand dollars a year in that, and it's fully self directable. Oh, you can put up to fifty two thousand, as opposed to the four hundred one k is not that much, right? Well, you're going to have limitations between employee contributions. You have to run payroll for a four hundred one k, so you're going to pick up garbage tax. Except, literally, will work off of straight line income, say like in an LLC that's disregarded, mm-hmm. is that if you've got earned income of $208,000 in that LLC, you can make that $52,000 contribution. Hmm. That's sweet. Okay. We'll have to talk it about that. It also works with S-Corps. There are a few more rules inside of S-Corps. Uh-huh. Um, the trick here is to minimize the cost and the restraints of the payroll when at all possible. Yeah, and I, and I imagine we haven't talked too much about this, you and I, is because you've been cleaning up some mess from my past relationships, professional relationships. Well, and I will tell you exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. is it's determined by your income level and what else is going on inside your structure. And so exactly what I just said a moment ago, as your income fluctuates and goes up and down each year, that's when you actually have to layer these tools in, Matt. Mm-hmm. Is that it's not like you have to do a SEP every year. Is that if we find that at the end of the calendar year that a SEP is appropriate for a specific client, that's when we make that recommendation. Got it. Got it. And that was the thing that you said doesn't have to happen actually in the calendar year. You can actually do that. Yeah, right? it's actually something we can do in, when you actually file your tax prior to filing your tax return. So sweet. next year. Sweet, sweet. And then this last category you had was donor-advised funds. What are those? It, we have a lot of clients that actually uh, do a lot of tithing and gifting. And so as your income vacillates up and down, whether you're a W-2 wage earner or whether you own your own business, a donor-advised fund allows you to take income years where you've got higher income and higher taxation and park the money in a donor-advised fund to give to your charitable giving over a course of time. Is that when you actually put money into a donor-advised fund, you get the tax deduction in that year. That does not mean that the check has to get written to the actual charity. So if you have an extremely large year in terms of income production, and you might want to choose to give a set dollar amount that is well above your ordinary giving to be able to pass that on to the charities that you're involved with over a two, three, four-year period so you're not having to do a lump sum charity. The benefit is you get the tax deduction in the year that you're in. Got it. Got it. And then you... It is, am I also understanding that you kind of get to direct where you want your funds to go rather than not at all going to Uncle Sam? Exactly. And the magic behind it is you still have to go, you know, to a 501c3 is that you need to be giving to, you know, true charity ch- or charitable organizations. It becomes a timing mechanism is that you can dump into a donor advised fund pre end of year and then control the output to the charities over a course of time. So you're actually making that donation in real time before the end of the year. And then if you over-donated because you had an extremely good year, it allows you to pass that on over a period of time to multiple charities of your choosing. Got it. And all this is legal, Kingsley? It's all in the code, buddy. <laughs> and that's the, that's the magic, is that when we talk about going above and beyond having an understanding and getting organized, getting your accounting together, and starting to you know, tip the thought process on what actually is out there in that vanilla realm is you can actually go to a whole different level. And that's what we do in our office is we focus on the code. So understanding what exists inside of the tax code, it's it's a complex code, 6,000 pages plus, but understanding what is inside of there is where we have the biggest value for our business owner clients is that we take it to another level. Actually understanding what's in every single business owner's business plan, their accounting, gives us the ability to follow the code and use every maximal deduction, you know, maximize every deduction that's out there for our clients. Mm-hmm. We're just starting to hit on a few of them. Right. So if we were going to talk, if we were going to talk about taxation, you and I could go for hours. Right, right. And I certainly don't want to do that. That's why I've hired you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, okay, so... It is legal, and the next question is, is this just for the rich, or is this for anybody in America? It's for for anybody, and it's for any business owner, is that if you're generating income and you're not maximizing some of the tools that we've already discussed and the tools we're about to discuss, you really need to focus on where you're at in terms of getting the appropriate help to make sure that you're maximizing your personal situation. Super. 
Super. So um, the the end of the year is coming, and we want to do some things before midnight at December thirty first. What are is there a little checklist that someone could run down or something that like if they made a little extra money this year and they're concerned about what they're going to have to pay next year? There's some things that they can creatively do to minimize what they actually have to pay out to the government. Uh, some some of the basic ones that we've talked about today would be maximizing four hundred one ks. Uh, maximizing IRA, which can, be, which can be done until your your tax reporting as well. HSA is limited. Um, a health savings account is limited to the calendar year. So that's something if you've got a high deductible plan, you want to go ahead and make that contribution. It has the same impact as making an IRA contribution um, or a 401k on your tax return. If you are uh, regularly giving to you know charitable organizations, and a lot of clients will do it based upon their income level. Is that you might want to consider a donor advised fund before the end of December. Mm-hmm. Okay. Those are those are hardcore twelve thirty one items. Is that as we get a little bit more nuance in terms of uh, somebody that's active in real estate, uh, cash flow, uh, depreciation, all those conversations start to become real world, and so we can talk. You know more defiantly about what a client should be doing versus not doing in the coming months as well. Mm-hmm. What um, you know, I brought this up to you a, a few months ago when we were in Nashville, and it was you know we're having a really great year, and we don't know exactly where we're going to end up yet. You you actually probably know better than I do, but one of the things that uh, we were discussing for a potential potential tax deduction was the, buying the new car. Correct. And so kind of go over like that that idea. Those, those are the kinds of little things I'm looking for. Is like, okay, say we've maxed out the 401k and we've got the RA and the HSA and we've got our chari- charities all covered, you know, and you still want to do some other things like, you know, do, is this the time to go and, and get a new company car? Is it time to go and, Absolutely. you know, buy a new office we do equipment, this. you know? Yeah, absolutely. We do this with all of our business owners in the month of December. Is that unfortunately the government likes to play a game with specifically what you're talking about, the limitations on Section 179 depreciation, um, which is for uh, large equipment and vehicles, for example. That number continues to vacillate each and every year. And for whatever magical reason, the government makes that decision and they vote for it on what the current year's Section 179 limitation is. And they've done it pretty much every year for the last three years. Mm-hmm. But we know that there is a 179 deduction available. So for any business owner that is actually engaged in thrift, having that Section 179 deduction is applicable. We just don't know what the magic number is. Right now, the limitation is set at 25000 which means that if you go out and buy a $25,000 piece of equipment, this necessity for your business that actually meets the guidelines for Section 179 is that you can actually take fully accelerated depreciation on that in this calendar year. So that type of planning mechanism, very specific to business owners, but also very specific in your case, is that if we're talking about buying a company vehicle, is that we're going to get deductibility in the immediate purchase of that. Mm-hmm. So you said um, accelerated depreciation. Fully means you basically get to take the expense mm-hmm. as opposed to having it amortized over a period of time. Vehicles are typically five years. Got it. Some equipment is 10 years. Okay. Very, sim- very similar to cost segregation mm-hmm. in cash flow properties and rental properties. Is it a portion of the house you can depreciate over five years? Another portion of the house you can depreciate over 10 years? And then the rest of the house gets lumped into a 30-year depreciation. With accelerated depreciation, we're being able to capture all of the cost in one year as opposed to having to wait the course of time. Got it. So that $25,000 piece of equipment that you purchased, um, and as long as it qualifies, and you fully uh, uh, took the deduction, advanced the deduction on that, you could essentially get a dollar-for-dollar deduction in the same calendar year this year. You get a dollar-for-dollar expense in the same year for for whatever is allowable under the code. So a good example would be if you maximize that 25000 which is the current limitation, which will probably be expanded sometime in the month of December, is that you get to deduct that expense fully 
or depreciated fully in the year of purchase. And so it has the same impact as you buying or spending on any other expense item. And so if your current tax rate, say, is 30% and you expend $25,000 for Section 179, that it's going to give you, you know, I do quick math, it's going to give you a tax savings of you know $8,500 roughly. Mm-hmm. Got it. So that $8,500 would be that you can choose to put that in your business or you can choose to send that to Uncle Sam. Yeah, exactly. Let's be clear, you still have the asset too. Right. So not only did you not only did you reduce your tax liability, but you have value in the asset that you purchased. Got it. And then the, as far as the company car category, does that apply the same there? Same type, same principle? Absolutely. As long as, the, as long as the car meets the regulations for Section 179, it's usually intended for heavier vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so, like a Prius, is not going to qualify. Uh-huh. But the Range Rover would. Huh? <laughs> but the Range Rover would. The Range Rover would. Suburbans okay. do. Um, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of clients that will buy farm equipment at the year end. A lot of dentists that will buy dental equipment and x-ray machines at year end. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Section 179 is the deduction. Got it. Are there just are, are there any other dollar for dollar deductions that we're missing? Uh, not that I would consider vanilla okay. that are straightforward that apply to everyone, okay. and that, that's kind of where, where we, you and I, were driving today. Is that is that we can talk about generics? The reality is, depending on an individual structure and an individual vision of what's going on with their business, is that you really need to apply the code specific to your cases. And so that would be like my third tip is to get better help. Really get defined about what other deductions you're missing without me going off on a tangent, like a two-hour two hour tangent where I could talk you know, specifically about other deductions that are actually built inside the code. Just a short list, it would be defined benefit plans, cost segregation on rentals and cash flow properties like we were just talking about, um, specific benefits for rehabbers, is that there is additional deductibility if somebody's out there doing a rehab. There's all sorts of things that we can apply that exist in the code if we're actually focused on getting the planning portion of it correct in the calendar year. Super. So we've got... Um... And, and structure, too. I mean, I glanced over structure earlier. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, told, I, I encourage people to go make a mess and we'll clean it up. But if you've got, if you've got three or four properties out there and you're not incorporated yet is that maybe now is the appropriate time to get incorporated. Mm-hmm. Super. So that would fa- certainly fall under the category of getting better help because we yep. who wants to do that stuff themselves? Um, let's see. Number one is get organized. Number two is make a plan. Number three is get better help. And if they wanted to inquire with you, Kingsley, potentially you being that better help, I love the domain name that, you, that you, you're using, fireyourcpa.com. Did you have to buy that from somebody, or did you just go no, to actually Go Daddy? Got lucky. And, really? <laughs> yeah, we've 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 had it on our shelf forever. Uh, uh-huh. We used it for some video production a few years ago, but we we usually only we only whip it out because uh, we're doing a call or we're in a presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it'll actually redirect you to one of our main websites Fantastic. to give you some more information about tax planning. Cool. So if you want to uh, talk to Kingsley about how. Uh, above and beyond the vanilla stuff that we covered today to see what's uh, applicable in for your specific situation on how you can mitigate your taxes, your tax liability, your tax bill, you can go to fireyourcpa.com, fireyourcpa.com. As a, as a huge collector of domain names, I'm very very much a big fan of that one. <laughs> it's easy to it's easy to remember, it's easy to spell, there's no hyphens, no dashes, no funny spellings, it's great. fireyourcpa.com. All right, Kingsley, so um what are you excited about for the next year? What's what's coming up? You know, <laughs> tax is an evolution, man. You know, so every year is that we all squirm a little bit when we're dealing with taxation because there's so many so many new rules um, each and every year. And I will tell you that if you look historically at the turning tables for taxation and major administration <laughs> implementation is that we are now in that envelope of potential um, new, new electoral candidates coming into this next year. And so just as in 2008, we had wide-sweeping changes that we knew that we could predict based upon the election results, we are avidly watching what's going on 
with the presidential race because it has a huge impact in all of the stuff that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I, well, I, the, the interesting is I, I remain apolitical because I have to in my job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the reality is that there's change coming, and so it gets us excited because taxes evolution is it literally we know it's always going to exist the question is what will it look like next year right yeah i've always considered myself apolitical because i didn't really think either party had all that much power in the first place and uh i mean over the overall well-being of us uh as citizens but i you know the older i get the closer i'm watching so i guess yeah, i guess it has yeah. to do with the more successful i become too the more it impacts me i guess as well well, it has a, for income producers, has a higher level of impact because you can't control it necessarily as a W-2. As a W-2 wage earner, you're subject to it. As a business owner, you can actually deploy different strategies and have different mechanisms in terms of investing that can actually impact that bottom line much faster. Right, right. Well, that's a good note to end on. Is there anything else I, that uh, we should go over that I forgot to bring up? No, I think we covered it all, buddy. Yeah, no, that was good. That was good. So go to fireyourcpa.com, talk to Kingsley, and uh, see if uh, working together make good sense. If nothing else, Kingsley has been an amazing help to me and my business, and uh, he's never short of at least advice or pointing you in the right direction if he's not the right fit for you. So thanks again, Kingsley. Let's do this again, okay? Oh, my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. I'm Matt Terrio, living the dream. You've been listening to Epic Real Estate Investing, the world's foremost authority on separating the facts from the BS in real estate investing education. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to visit iTunes and share your thoughts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time here at Epic Real Estate Investing with Matt Terrio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.